Thank you very much. It's a real honor and pleasure to speak here this morning. So I know it's early in the day, and uh, I apologize for bringing junk food into the room already, especially to health professionals. I've had so many medics and doctors write to me saying, I love your concept, but did you have to call it a donut? Do you know how unhealthy these are? Um, so all I can say is perhaps I'm going to introduce you to the one donut that might actually turn out to be good for us. And I hope I can explain why. So in the 20th century, the shape of progress was very simple. It was this ever-rising line measured in GDP growth. It's the dominant paradigm, the dominant metric. We hear it in our politicians' language every day. The trouble is it brought two things uncomfortably with it. It's brought extraordinary inequality. Now just 62 billionaires own the same wealth as the poorest half of the world's population and sail around in these very high carbon ships. Um, and at the same time, it's brought extraordinary degradation, which Kevin has just spoken so eloquently and passionately about. And this is a very uncomfortable problem to have when you live by a growth paradigm. So what can our politicians do with that? It's clear that they are searching for a better language to describe what progress looks like while they're still wedded to growth. And I call it playing growth bingo. So I listen every time I hear a politician talking about growth. What word do they stick in front of it? So Angela Merkel has talked about sustained growth. Barack Obama wants long-term lasting growth. David Cameron called for balanced growth. But you can have it good, you can have it green, smart, smarter growth, equitable, inclusive growth, anything you like, just so long as it's growth. Of course, some of these politicians' faces are about to go or have already gone. And so I've been listening carefully to what those coming say. Theresa May just talks about economic growth. She says she wants Britain to be the greatest meritocracy in the world, but when she talks about economic growth, she doesn't add any word in front of it. I'm still trying to figure out what she's doing with this concept. But Donald Trump, he's very clear. He's stripped away all these nice adjectives. He's just pro-growth. And that's alarming because it means we're going back, we're going away from the nuance, we're going away from the change. So when it comes to change, I'm extremely inspired by the extraordinary American inventor, Buckminster Fuller. And his wide words, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. And so in that spirit, I don't want to stick adjectives in front of growth and try and amend it, appease it, or make it more palatable. I want to come up with a completely new model. And it turns out that that model looks rather like a donut. So let me tell you what this donut is. On the outside of it, the outer ring of the donut, is, let's say, an environmental ceiling of pressure that we can put on the planet's boundaries before we tip this extraordinary, fragile, living Earth on which we depend out of the benevolent state it's been in for the last 11,700 years that's been so incredibly generous to humanity that we've managed to thrive. What are those elements? Because I know you can't read all of them from where you are. Well, let me tell you about where they came from. In 2009, a group of leading Earth system scientists got together and said, what is it about the last 11,700 years that's been an extraordinarily stable phase of planet Earth's history? And, and what is it about those? How can we understand what those are? And to me, these people are like planetary doctors. Because if you, if you look back to 
this wonderful picture of a mural from 14th century France. Imagine the conversation that these people were having as they cut open a human body. What is this, this blood everywhere? And, and these gut things running through the body. And then there's these muscles. And then there's these nerves. How do all these systems interact? Do they all matter? Could you remove any of them and it wouldn't matter if they'd gone? And each one of them, how much pressure could you put on each one of those systems before you tipped it out of health into ill health or death? So how, how long could I hold my breath for before I'm going to faint or go unconscious? How long could I go without water before I'll die? How fast can I make my heart beat before I give myself a heart attack? How high can my body's temperature rise before I die? Medics have spent hundreds of years examining many, many, many individual human beings and learned the parameters of the human body. And that's what we call modern medicine. It's why so many of us survive. My children, I have, I have eight-year-old twins, and when they were very little, I knew that if their temperature went above 38 or 39 degrees, I had to completely focus on bringing it back down because we call that a fever. It's too high and it must come back down. So we know the parameters of pressure that we can put on the human body. Well, I think of today's Earth system scientists as planetary doctors for the 21st century. But instead of hundreds of years of practice and knowledge, it's been going for about 30 years, so it's incredibly new science. And there's only one planetary body on which to experiment and, and explore. So it's a much trickier challenge to understand the health of our planetary body. But it's the very same questions. How many different systems are interacting? What's the equivalent of the planet's respiratory system, nervous system, muscular system, skeletal system? And how much pressure can we put on any one of those systems before we kick it out of balance and tip Earth from this benevolent phase of life into ill health for humanity, for sure? And they said they believe there are nine key Earth system processes that we have to stay within to keep ourselves within these nine planetary boundaries. So Kevin has talked a lot about the top one there, climate change, ensuring we don't put so many greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that we cause the Earth's temperature to rise with so many extraordinarily damaging impacts. But there are others. We mustn't withdraw so much water from Earth's freshwater systems that we actually transform the hydrological cycle and stop the flow of rivers, that we mustn't put so much nitrogen and phosphorus fertilizer into cropland that leaches out. It doesn't get taken up by crops. It leaches out into the, to the sea and, and lake bodies, and it causes eutrophication, changing those uh, bodies green, absorbing all the oxygen and killing off aquatic life. Other ones include ocean acidification. So much carbon dioxide gets dissolved in oceans that it acidifies the water, killing again, killing off sea life. Chemical pollution, whether the chemical is plastic or persistent organic pollution or chemical waste, or all sorts of products that humankind, these novel entities that we create, we don't yet fully understand how they interact with the fabric of life and change, even at the DNA level, change life forms. We mustn't put so many um, atmospheric aerosols, little tiny particulates up in the air uh, that we see as smoke or smog. They cause smog for human health, but also they can ch change where the monsoon occurs. They move the monsoon patterns across countries. The ozone hole, uh, we, the, the, the release of CFC gases opened up this great big hole in the ozone layer. And we know that we must then close that because the ozone layer protects us from ultraviolet light that causes skin cancer and damages so many living organisms. Biodiversity loss, 
If we transform the surface of Earth's land and reduce biodiversity, we not only lose an extraordinary range of living organisms, but we also create monoculture and lose the resilience that is embedded within diversity. And the lastly one on, on land use change, if we transform the natural state of land's Earth's surface and turn it into farmland and cities and highways, again, we're reducing Earth's capacity to, to absorb carbon dioxide for sure, but also the resilience of diverse landforms. So the Earth system scientists said, we think these are the nine planetary boundaries that we have to keep an eye on to stay within safe levels of pressure on each of them, because they're all interdependent. And if we push ourselves over these risk boundaries, we, we really risk kick, kicking Earth out of the safe space that's been a human home for, for over 10,000 years. So where are we on those planetary boundaries? They plotted them on a chart, and you can see we're well over the climate change boundary. We're way over on the nitrogen boundary and way over on the biodiversity loss boundary. In fact, they've updated this science, and they say we're also far over on the land use change boundary and on the phosphorus boundary. So we are already over at least four of the boundaries. They haven't yet managed to quantify aerosol loading and chemical pollution, so we could be over on those as well. We don't know. They are huge unknowns. But we are already way over planetary boundaries. But is the answer to come right back within planetary boundaries as if we were putting no pressure on the planet? Is the answer to use no fertilizer at all, to withdraw no water from Earth's rivers and lakes? Um, is the answer to transform none of the Earth's land surface? No, because that would be death and disease and destruction for many millions of human beings. We have to engage with Earth's resources to, to provide for our own needs. So when I saw this diagram of the nine planetary boundaries and drawn as a circle, and I was sitting in Oxfam, and some of my colleagues over there were responding to food crisis in the Sahel, and others were campaigning for health and education for all worldwide, I thought, if there are outer limits of pressure beyond which lie unacceptable environmental degradation, then so too there are inner limits of resource use and pressure be below which lie shortfalls in human well-being or human deprivation. So in that blue circle lies human deprivation in terms of the most basic needs of our lives, whether it's healthcare, food, water, education, basic income, having a job, having a voice in society, being resilient, having access to energy, and having these things with social equity and gender equality. And I crowdsourced these from the world's governments in the run-up to the Rio Plus 20 conference. So these were the 11 top priorities of more than half of the world's governments the social priorities that they saw, and they, most of them, in fact all of them, have been since embedded in the Sustainable Development Goals. Where are we on those social foundations? Well, if, if every human being in the world had the resources to meet their human rights, that entire inner circle would go orange. But you can see there's these blue areas of deprivation remaining. So, for example, on food, 13% of people don't have enough food to eat. Uh, for income, 21% of people live on less than $1.25 a day. So now what happens when we put these together? We've entered the 21st century already having exceeded three, even four planetary boundaries. We have gone into a risk zone where we risk tipping Earth out of the stable home that it's been for us for centuries, for millennia. And yet many millions of people worldwide still cannot meet their very most basic needs. To me, this is the extraordinary indictment of the path of economic development that has been pursued over the last 200 years or even longer. The idea that this is what progress is, is economic growth, it's taken us here. 
To me, this is a, one way of creating a compass for the 21st century challenge and asking ourselves, can we actually come back into this donut-shaped space, ending human deprivation and environmental degradation at the same time? And to me, this is the generational challenge. Fiona said, can we balance hope and despair? We can be desperate when we look at the extraordinary overshoot and shortfall. And we can be hopeful when we see a positive vision of a world we want to inhabit. What if we could be the generation, because as Kevin says, we have to be the generation that begins to turn this situation around, that actually starts putting humanity on track for being within the donut rather than pushing ourselves further outside of its safe and just space. So what if each of us put our own lives on a little donut-shaped table and asked ourselves, how does the way that I live impact on humanity's ability to come within this safe and just space between social and planetary boundaries? How does the way that I eat, travel, shop, bank, vote, volunteer, demonstrate, help my neighbors, how do all these ways that I live impact on social and planetary boundaries? What if every company in the world actually drew up its corporate strategy at this donut-shaped table and asked itself, is the way that we're producing product actually undermining people's human rights and pushing the planet over planetary boundaries? Or can we transform who we are as a business and what we produce and how we produce it and what we stand for so that the core practice of our business is actually helping to bring humanity into this safe and just space? There are companies today that are taking on that challenge and trying to transform their business. What if you were sitting around this table as a set of healthcare professionals asking yourselves, how could we create a healthcare system that brings humanity into this space that meets the health needs, but also the rights, the voice, the resilience, the gender equity, the social equity needs of everybody within social and planetary boundaries? What kind of healthcare system would do that? What if every urban designer, every planner building the cities of the future, because there are going to be many more, had a donut-shaped diagram on the table as a compass, as a, as a vision for the city they wanted to build. Well, I know that might, if that sounds ridiculous. The interesting thing is that there are people doing this right now. I was contacted by a group of urban planners in Kokstad, which is the fastest growing town in KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa. And they said, we love this donut diagram. We took it in. In 2012, the municipality of our town worked together with the local youth, and we drew up a vision for our town for what we want, for how it's going to provide for everybody's needs within planetary boundaries. And the best thing that they did, I'm not sure if you could see it on the screen, but under the social foundation, they added one extra dimension, which was fun. They said, we're going to, we're going to live within social planetary boundaries. We're going to have fun while we do it. So there's the hope. But also, it's not just happening in South Africa. In, Stock, in Sweden, uh, some designers contacted me, and they're, they're designing and building a new urban um, suburb of Stockholm, about 15 minutes by train, called Kimlinge. And they said, we love this donut, and we are setting out to design the most sustainable city districts in the world. We want Kimlinga to be the first one, but we want to repli replicate this worldwide. So again, taking a positive vision of social and planetary uh, integrity and saying, how can we redesign the world around this? So there's a vision, but what would it actually take to bring ourselves into this space? For me, one of the key questions we need to be asking, Kevin has started asking it this morning, what key factors shape humanity's ability to move into this safe and just space? And I'm going to give you one minute to talk to the person nearest you, next to you, come up with 
some big ideas, and Kevin's already given you plenty of clues. Come up with some big ideas. Most of them can be expressed in just one word of what you think it takes to bring us into this safe and just space. So you've got one minute right now, and then I'm going to ask you for the answers. Go. But I'm going to go round with my hands, and as my fingers come past you, if you want to shout out a word, shout it out. So I'm just going to collect words as I go around. Here we go. Education. Vegetables. Legislation. Waste. Responsibility. Public transport. Nature. Collapse. What was that? Beef less. Talk to the lady about vegetables. Let's keep going. Literature. Sorry? Climate change fiction. Great. Taxation. Proportional representation. Enough sleep. Rebuilding frameworks of care to hold uncare in check. Great. Human rights, what was that one? Spirituality. New economic systems, they had to come in there somewhere. Commitment. Come on, people at the edge. What's that? Allotment. Great. Taking account of externalities and economics. Okay, brilliant. Oh. Intergenerational justice. Brilliant. Okay. So, love. Love. Thank you. From The Economist. Excellent. Some economists are fantastic, including Paul Eakins. Right. So, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about six. You've said a, a fantastic array. Six of them come up time and time and time again. So, I'm just going to talk briefly about six of these issues. Population, inequality, aspiration, education, governance, and technology. And I hope you can hear that some of the words you used would fall within these. So I'm going to start in a place that people are often afraid to talk about, with population. Because population does matter. It really matters how many of us there are. If we want to meet the human rights of all people in the world, we need to care about the, the number of us in total. Because the, the more of us there are in total, the more that the requirements for meeting that social foundation are going to increase. The thing about population is it's not the one that keeps me awake at night, you see. Because in the, in the, late, in the early 1970s, Paul Ehrlich wrote a book called The Population Bomb. And population was this great scare story, as if this is the population growth curve, it exponentially growing. And it looked like it was exponentially growing in the, in the early 1970s. But actually, what population is doing is quite the opposite. It's plateauing, right? A very subtle difference of the arm from the exponential growth curve to... A plateau, it's gone through an exponential phase, but it's plateauing off. And the great thing about population growth is we know how to slow down the growth rate of the human population. I'm sure all of you know, because it's got a lot to do with medicine. It's about child health, women's health, women's reproductive rights, girls' education, and women's empowerment. And these things are a magic list of factors that if you empower women and provide decent health care, Women are empowered to take control of the size of their own families. And this is how we slow down and stabilize the growth rate and stabilize the size of the global population. So this is not the one that keeps me awake at night. 
because there are other things like GDP growth that are still on the exponential curve, and we haven't figured out how to make them plateau. What about inequality? I mentioned that 13% of people in the world don't have enough food to eat. How much would it actually require to make them, make, give them enough food to eat? It would take 3% of today's global food supply to ensure that everybody had enough food to eat. And that is in light, right? 3%? Well, right now, 30 to 50% of food is lost post-harvest, wasted in the supply chain, or scraped off plates in the kitchen. So we're looking for 10% of what's not even being eaten at the moment. This is in one measure of the scale of extraordinary inequality that there is in the world, not just in terms of income, but access to the most basic of resources of food. Kevin already mentioned that 45% of people worldwide, 45% of the world's carbon emissions are produced in the name of just 10% of people. I call them the global carbonistas, and we know we're part of it. Many of us are part of the global carbonistas, living on every continent with a high, high carbon lifestyle. But also, one third of the world's sustainable nitrogen budget, so if we brought nitrogen use back within what's seen as a sustainable level by planetary boundary scientists, one third of that is used to produce meat and dairy for the EU. So kudos to the woman who wanted a lot uh, vegetables, to the man who said beefless diet, and the person over here called for allotments. The way we eat and the way we eat in high-income countries has a huge impact on global carbon emissions. So aspiration, I'm going to move on. For, I've done population and inequality. Aspiration. We have lived through a century that has encouraged consumerism and selfish individualism. It's the PR industry, it's the advertising industry, it's the engine of consumerism that sends us out every Easter and Halloween and here we go Christmas and then it'll be Valentine's Day and then it'll be, you know, coming around all these holidays we're encouraged to go out. Black Friday taking root in this country. Why are we, why are we taught to find status in what we buy and what we own? And we need to transform that to finding meaning in community, in experience, and relationships. And that experience, of course, is a picture of people hiking up a mountain. Of course, it also matters how you get there. So you can't fly in a high-carbon flight to go and have a wonderful natural experience, as Kevin is talking about. We need to be consistent in, in the whole vision of what we're doing. But transforming those aspirations, whether it's for love or for bringing care back in, this is a profound transformation, and we have been put through this century of consumerism and, you know, step out into London, it's all around you. Advertising is everywhere. How on earth are we going to undo the lock-in, the economic lock-in of advertising and consumerism? Technology. There are many, many different technologies you could use. So on the top here, I've got pictures of different suggestions that people have used for combating climate change. You could stick mirrors in space and reflect the sunlight back, or you could stick solar panels on the roof of your house. How about supplying enough food for the world? You could uh, encourage community gardens and enable small groups of farmers to save their own seeds and grow their own food. Or you could grow high-tech biotech food in uh, scientifically controlled laboratories and own seed by corporate owned. All of these are possible solutions, but they have very, very different impacts, both on planetary boundaries and on social outcomes, social distribution and social justice in terms of voice, control of technology. So they have multiple impacts and often the, one of the reasons for looking at nine planetary boundaries together is because sometimes people come up with solutions for climate change which will actually aggravate problems of biodiversity loss or problems of food shortage as Kevin was talking about looking at in terms of the use of um, biomass 
as a, as a means of uh, creating a low-carbon society. All sorts of other ramifications. You cannot look at climate change in isolation from the rest of it, from the social story and the other planetary boundaries. And let's remember that behind these choices are many, many companies, whether they're fossil fuel companies, car companies, high-tech companies, food companies, with huge lobby power and lobby interest in terms of which technology is chosen. So these technologies are not being chosen in a vacuum or in terms of a calm, rational policy decision-making uh, choice. It is strongly influenced by vested interests. Which brings me on to governance. Whether it's teamwork or collaboration, governance matters from the very local to the global. And I've just brought here one example of global governance. If we could see that picture of the planet as a video, you'd see the clouds moving continually, shifting between and over continents. They don't recognize national borders. But as humans, we have divided ourselves into these little plots of land from Afghanistan at the beginning to Zimbabwe at the end, and many, many in between that we call countries. And then we come together, whether it's at the United Nations or the Paris Agreement, and so often negotiate from short-term national self-interest and find it so hard to rise above that and, and seek long-term common collective global human interest for future generations as well as today's. And that's just the global governance story. And we've seen the problems of that played out over more than 20 years, resulting in the Paris Agreement, which is deeply inadequate. But it's, it, there's even an agreement there. Many of the other planetary boundaries don't even have an agreement process going on. So from the local, the way, the way you relate to your neighbors across the garden fence, that's part of governance as well. And if we can't do it with our own neighbors across our garden, garden fences, how can we expect the United Nations to do it? So we have to transform the way we govern ourselves from the very, very local to the global. And that brings me lastly to education. And it's one I'm passionate about, uh, particularly about economic education, but all kinds of education. We need to transform the paradigms that we're using to understand the world. So has any, if anyone here has been to an economics lecture, let's imagine if this was an economics lecture. Anybody, what was the first diagram that you would learn in economics? Shout it out. Supply and demand, there you go, you learn the supply and demand curves, right? The little crisscross of the supply and demand lives, lines. It's magic. Uh, Kevin had a lovely picture of a magician pulling a rabbit out of a hat. To me, this is economists pulling a rabbit out of a hat because the first diagram you learn before anyone even mentioned it, the economy apparently is the market. That is what the economy is, and it's about supply and demand. And apparently the market and prices pull the economy into equilibrium. Well, the equilibrium is just not true at all. The economy does not exist in equilibrium. It's a complex, ever-evolving, shifting system. It's not mechanical. But the economy is not just the market. There's the household economy. All of us came from household economies this morning, and anybody who got kids up today definitely came from a household economy of raising the next generation, feeding, cleaning, uh, washing the dishes. It's reproducing ourselves as labor in the economy. But there's also the role of the state, and there's the role of the commons. So there are many forms of economy, and mainstream economics just takes us straight into the market as if that's all there is. We have to deeply enrich our understanding of what the economy is, and what it's for, and who we are in it, and how it moves. So I wish the first economics lecture didn't begin with supply and demand. I wish it began with the donut and the question, what kind of economy would bring humanity into this space? And that would be a completely different economics degree. And that's from my passion of reinventing re education. This is where my passion lies. So I left my job at Oxfam 
because I wanted to pursue this even more deeply, and I've just spent the last two years writing a book. Um, it's called Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. And as Fiona said at the beginning, I used to be ashamed to call myself an economist. It was such an embarrassing thing to have trained as because it was so inadequate as a way of understanding the world. But I'm reclaiming that word, and I call myself a renegade economist because economics means household management. And what could we need more today than planetary household management in the interests of all of its inhabitants? So I want to reclaim the idea of what economics is and what it's for. Uh, this book comes out next year, and I very much hope I'll be touring um, internationally trying to promote the ideas of the book, and I very much hope I'll come across your paths in that process. But let me return to our key factors that shape the donor. I've left one blank, partly because there's always another thing that somebody could say, and there were many, many great ideas here now. I'm going to leave it there blank, and I hope that in the discussion we now have, if you feel there's a burning issue that's not covered by these six, what should be in that seventh box? Thank you very much.